Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We're everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by Haley Mitsui, Jer Swigert, and myself, John Huckins. And as always, we're going to jump into the conversation with a question of the week. We have our question of the week this week. This is Haley Mitsui, Director of Formation, joined as always by my co-hosts and co-founding directors. You can't see them, but they just gave great cheesy smiles, John Huckins and Jer Swigart. Mm -hmm. And this week, we are going um, with a classic question, which is just, what is the most beautiful place that you can remember? Love the question. Or most recent memory, wherever you want to take it. I, I'm a, here's the direction I'm going to take that question in. I remember the first time I was stunned with the beauty of something. And, uh, and it was, I, I was a kid. I don't remember how old I was, but I remember, um, cause I grew up in like the cornfields of Wisconsin. And so there's a unique kind of beauty to that. But I remember driving to South Dakota, which you wouldn't think is much better, but, uh, but getting to the Badlands and, uh, the, just, the, just the, the the vastness the spaciousness the colors the the desolation the it was such a unique alternative kind of beauty that i had ever experienced before that i remember as a little kid just getting out of the car and just standing there almost breathless at, at its beauty so that's the first most beautiful thing that i can remember mm, love it what about you john i feel like i'm cheating a little bit because this this may be just objectively one of the most beautiful things but i was raised in central california and so i have memory of getting in the back of the old uh, buick station wagon and heading into yosemite and seeing half dome for the first time and it was i mean I, you can remember like turning into the canyon and then looking up and being like oh my gosh is that are we on planet earth right now and um I'd still say it's probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So, uh, and quick, the, quick question: Were you sitting continues. forward facing or back facing in that station wagon? Ooh, always back. I mean, it was, okay. I loved <laughs> being able to just kind of gaze into the eyes yeah. of the person right behind oh, us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You and dare I each only, other to do stupid things, and you, bet. you know. And I can, I can just imagine the beauty of Half Dome out that that back window. That's amazing. That's it. That's real. That actually may be why Half Dome was gorgeous because I, I looked agree. at it backwards through a Buick. Lucky. Hales, what do we got? I know. I'm like, I'm trying to think of an early memory. I'm I'm lucky to have grown up in Seattle and um, have, you know, I've had access to gorgeous views of Mount Rainier and the Puget Sound my whole life. And I do really love and appreciate the beauty of nature. But the first thing that came to my mind is a much more recent memory, which was when um, I was in Japan a few years ago. And a popular thing in Japan are these uh, places called onsens, and they are like public bathhouses. Um, and most of the time, like the old school ones are actually in uh, hot springs in the mountains. And then, you know, in urban areas, they have, you know, more um, modernized ones. But we were at this uh, one 
in the mountains of Nagano. And it was literally just like in the side of this mountain. And so you are sitting, also you have to be naked. And so you're naked <laughs> sitting in these bath, this bathhouse, just like out in the freezing cold, but in this hot spring and surrounded panoramic view of the snowy Japanese mountains and trees. And that was like, that was actually a very, like very uh, thin space for me, like a very close to the divine moment for me. I think that was probably the most overwhelmed by beauty that I've ever been. Let's practice tending to the beauty or noticing the beauty. I love it. And I think that's actually a good uh, transition into the conversation we're going to have with David Bridges. Uh, He is someone who brings a very pastoral seasoned um, voice and perspective. I described it as a bit of a salve for the soul today that's going to give us a vantage point for what it looks like to live faithfully this everyday peacemaking life through the valleys, through the darkness as part of communities participating in God's restoration. So let's jump in with that conversation. Yeah, I'm thrilled to acknowledge and to thank one of our core sponsors of the Everyday Peacemaking podcast, the organization Respero. They're committed to making safe and life-giving conversations available and accessible to everyone. In short, they they offer free counseling and training in counseling as well. And, um, you know, for me, this feels like it's been a uniquely rough year, but I would say if we're honest, every year has its ups and downs if we're, if we're truly seeking to live into wholeness. And so personally, uh, one of my central lifelines has been in, to be in regular counseling, tending to my head, heart, soul, aligning values with actions, having someone to listen to stuff uh, that I need to get out so it doesn't fester inside and tear me apart. And so for me, it's been through Respero that I've had access to this type of deep care and accompaniment. And if you're in personal, personal need of a counselor, wanting to grow personally, or even get trained as a counselor, we encourage you to check out Respero.org where they offer personal counseling because they believe no one should struggle alone. Respero um, offers counselors at no cost, faith-based counseling, and no matter where you live. They also offer online courses and workshops. Their courses are designed to give you hope and to provide a blueprint for loving yourself, loving others, and flourishing in your spiritual life. They want to meet you where you are, whether your motivation is to help yourself or help those around you. And lastly, they offer counselor training. This gives you the knowledge, skills, and self-awareness to identify and use your gifts in many settings, but especially as part of their counseling team. Uh, Ultimately, their goal, Respero's goal, is to have more and more healthy and healing conversations happening in this world. So check them out, Respero.org. All right, everybody. I am thrilled to introduce you to my friend uh, and peacemaking conspirator, uh, co-conspirator David Bridges. He's a Quaker pastor in Houston, Texas. Um, and we met almost 10 years ago in Palestine, Israel, as part of our Fuller Studies together. And what a decade it's been, uh, partnering in all sorts of different ways in the work of peacemaking and in our friendship. Thanks for being here. You bet. I'm honored to be here. 
tell us a little about yourself in your own context, um, because you are you're an odd pastor in the context of U.S. American Christianity. Odd in some of the ways I find most compelling. We'll get into that in a little bit, but tell us about yourself. Uh, I was born in South Bend, Indiana, home of the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, who are 10 and 0 right now. Uh, I, so I've been a lifelong uh, football fan. I, uh, I'm a baseball guy, too, so I, I follow the Houston Astros. Uh, Rochelle and I have been married for almost 35 years. We have four kids, grown kids, um, and our first grandchild arrived about a year ago right now. So uh, I've, I've been pastoring at Friendswood Friends Church, which is just on the south side of Houston. Um, I've been there for 20 years, um, been the senior pastor for almost 16 years, and uh before that, worked uh, in friends circles, friends churches, and denominational offices, and in youth ministry, and uh, so I've been working among friends for uh, most of my adult life. Um, on a personal level, besides sports, I like to read. We're boating people. We we water ski. I fish, and uh, just enjoy hanging out with people and and having a good time too. So is that enough? Oh, that's that is fantastic, um, man! Anyone listening in just wants to hang out with you now, no doubt. The uh, the vastness of the interest. So one thing, what I said earlier that you're an odd pastor, it's because many of us, especially many of us listening in here to this podcast, have come from constructs of evangelicalism within the United States that have been very uh, limiting, concerning. Uh, aligning with different powers within our political systems in ways that don't feel congruent with the Jesus we, we talk about and read about in the Gospels. And the Quaker tradition, Friends tradition, uh, the Friends Church is part of the Quaker tradition. And you could, maybe we should say, John, too, the words friends and Quaker are synonymous terms. So Good clarification. either one is fine. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so you're a pastor, as I began, I, I really know most of what I know about your tradition through you, even though I'd studied some about you all in seminary, what's so compelling is you are in Texas, which many of our perceptions of Christianity in Texas is not one that's connected to a tradition that is committed to nonviolence, uh, an understanding of God's mission being restoration, that God is restoring all things. Not everything isn't just going to hell, and we're hoping for God to evacuate us out of this thing. Like there are so many things about how you talk about theology and how that informs how your community shows up in the conflicted reality of the last, even the last six months, that are um, really compelling. So I want I want to dig into that a little bit and wonder if you would give us some, give us some context as to what it's been like to be a pastor with this vision for restoration in a community in the midst of all this polarization of our country, uh, and how that's played out for you. <laughs> It, to be honest, it's been probably a lot like um, a lot of other pastors that are um, trying to follow the peacemaking ways of Jesus um, wherever they are in this country. Um, our tradition um, makes maybe makes that a little bit easier for me, but uh, the branch of friends that I'm a part of, the evangelical friends, <clears throat> um, really have... have um, not held on to that that peace tradition 
in the last hundred years like we could have. And, and so, especially being in this part of the country, and we're, we're just right down the road from NASA, from Johnson Space Center. And when Johnson Space Center was built, we began to have a lot of NASA people come into our community and into our church. And it changed some of that flavor. A lot of defense contractors, it changed some of the flavor of our congregation. And we've been um, not as, as forthright about that tradition, um, at least in the last 50 years or so. But um, we're surrounded, like you said, um, by um, people that, and, and by Christians, by, by well-meaning Christians, by people that are faithful, but that very much see uh, Christian faith as something that's going to carry them away. We're all going to fly away one day. And in a way that excuses us from engaging in the work of reconciliation and peacemaking. So sometimes it's really hard. Maybe yeah. that's an easy answer to your question. That, 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 and that's where I want to go with this is how, how has choosing to lead in, in the way of Jesus that was um, about self-sacrifice, not about militaristic overthrow, how has that been hard and how has that also been hopeful? And maybe, what are a couple stories that illustrate that? How has that been hard to be that kind of countercultural pastor, have that countercultural theology in a place like Texas and even in the U.S. As, as a whole? And where have you seen hope? Where have you seen some uncommon friendships come about or your community actually lean into these conflicts in helpful ways? Yeah, good questions. Um, it's been hard be, when, when you feel like you're by yourself. Um, when you feel like you're propagating this theology of reconciliation and peacemaking on your own. And luckily that hasn't always been the case for me. And I've had good partners in ministry, you know, my co-pastors here at the church and um, others around me that have walked that with me. I've had a few uh, pastors locally that that have walked along with me in this process. But when it feels most hard is when you feel alone, like everybody around you is, is saying something else and wanting something else. It's hard when people say you're too political. Um, it's hard when people leave the church because they think you're being too political in what you say um, in your messaging. Um, that's always incredibly painful. It's hard when even my own denomination, uh, it seems, isn't interested in some of the things that I'm interested in. And, and because of that, because I, I often feel isolated and um, alienated. So it's hard when you feel those things. Um, it's hard when you're, when I am viewed with suspicion by other local pastors and ministries. Uh, so, so there's difficulties in that, and, that, and it's hard when you just know you're going to get pushback all the time when you talk about um, the peacemaking ways of Jesus, the reconciling work of Jesus, and, and how the call as one of his followers is to participate in that process of reconciliation. If I can real quick, the thing about participating in that process of restoration means that people, pastors like you, have to have the hard conversations. Like you have to be in the pulpit naming the things that are so broken, which can be disruptive and leads to why it's so hard, all the things you just listed, right? I mean, you're not, 
like the, the, the pastor with this kind of restorative theology doesn't walk around those hard conversations. You actually are saying, oops, no, we have to go right into them because that's the only path to restoration. Yeah, that, I, that's obviously right, John. But I also think um, there's some difference in the way that happens as a pastor in, uh, and the way you do that, the way you and Jer and Glo- the Global Immersion does it. Um, because, I mean, these are people I live with that I love, that I, I marry and bury, and, then, and that I'm a part of their lives, and I want to be a part of those lives. So when you set, talk about having a hard conversation or pushing, I mean, I think that probably I don't um, do that with the straightforwardness that maybe you imagine, and um, that I try to be gentle in those conversations. And so, and so that maybe <clears throat> moves me toward the the answer to the question: How is it hopeful? Um, because it's hopeful when, over a long period of time, you start to see change and transformation in people's lives, and. Um, I, I, one of my favorite authors and mentors was Eugene Peterson. And one of the very first books I read by him was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is actually a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, but I think it's an appropriate um, way to think about pastoral ministry, a long obedience in the same direction. Just be faithful for a long time and you start to see transformation in people's lives. So, I I find this work hopeful when I hear people say, hey, this is real. My faith matters now. It matters in every day. It, it makes me hopeful when I hear people say, we can tell a difference in this church um, from the places we've been in the past. So I was with a couple about a year ago now that um, began worshiping with us a few minutes or a few months before I met with them. And... Um, I was saying, you know, what do you notice about our church and our worship? And they just started saying, we hear words we don't hear, we haven't heard. And these these are people in their late 60s. And they were saying, we've been Christians our whole lives, but we are hearing words about faith and hope and peace and reconciliation and our participation in all that that we haven't heard in the past. So those kinds of things make me hopeful. One of our traditions uh, during the Advent season is to have uh, one of our members each Sunday in worship share the story of Christ coming to their life. And this last week, the young man that shared, um, he, he just he just said, "This church matters to me. It's changed, you know, the way I've thought about what it means to follow Jesus, and it's it's um, made all these differences in my life." So those kind of things are hopeful. I mean, it's, it's hopeful work when last spring I saw how many people from our church showed up at the Black Lives Matter rally. Um, when we didn't really promote it, in fact, we didn't have time to promote it, didn't really know it was happening. And, and then just in a matter of hours, seeing the number of people from our fellowship show up, that that makes you think, hey, it's working, the, some of the things you're doing. So um, when when you see people moving toward conflict and and trouble with the tools of hope and reconciliation, but um, on their own. So a couple months ago, hurricanes just east of us in in Louisiana, and some of our folks saying, we're going to go learn um, what's happening there and what what needs are there. And so that, that 
that makes me hopeful too. That's so good. And that's the kind of thing we talk about often, in, in, and you've heard us talk about this, that when we see restoration, when we experience that hope and it looks like God actually restoring what's been broken, we have to celebrate it like crazy. And what would you say as a pastor who's an everyday peacemaker with a living, breathing community day in and day out, week in and week out, in the midst of all the mud and muck and polarization and pain, uh, how do you all celebrate when restoration happens? Or what, what's your word to us for how we celebrate when we see restoration happening? <laughs> That's a great question, and I, I'm not sure I have a very good answer. I was, I was with a very ethnically diverse group about 15 years ago, and we were studying Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, together. And we were talking about which of these disciplines is our tradition good at and which of these uh, disciplines are we maybe not so good at. And some of my African-American classmates, they said, man, we know how to celebrate, but we don't know, like you Quakers, how to be silent. And uh, one of the, the, the Quakers who were with me in that setting said, you know, the opposite is true for us. We're good at the silent stuff but I'm not sure we're good at celebration. So I'm not sure I have a good answer for your question. We try to call people out. We try to highlight in worship and in, in communications and stuff, the things that they're doing. Um, and they are doing a lot. So, we, and we try to help participate in that join, jump on board when they're doing stuff, but I, I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. Totally. Let me ask one more question of you. Uh, for all those listening in, whether they're pastors or just everyday followers of Jesus slugging it out and, and feeling that, you talked about earlier, those times where you're feeling alone. You just feel strange choosing <laughs> this, this way of the cross in a culture of the sword is a lonely journey. Um, but it is that long obedience. Uh, and what's, what's your word to maybe that pastor that's listening in right now that just is feeling it from every angle and is being called crazy for following this Jesus, the everyday peacemaking way of life. What, what's your word to them? I'll say two things real briefly. One, um, go back to the scriptures that have shaped us and formed us with stories of hope and faithfulness that, that works out. I mean, go back to those stories where you see our ancestors of faith, who are facing the same kind of situations that we are, the same kind of loneliness, the same kind of loss, the same kind of grief and, and suffering, and, and make those people your partners um, and, and make try to embrace their stories um, in ways that will bring you hope. And then the second thing I would say is this is hard work and it, and it, it requires vulnerability, but reach out reach out to um, other people around you. There's nothing um, that has been more important to me in this past six months through the pandemic than a group of friends, pastors that I'm meeting with um, uh, weekly on Zoom calls um, who share my, my goals and my aspirations and who encourage me along the way. And so that, that's the second thing I'd say, reach out and find some like-minded people, whether they're um, your neighbor next door or somebody across the country, like my friendship with you, John, that matters so much to me, but reach out to the people that will, will help walk along with you and become your companions in, in the journey. Awesome. So good. 
David, thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you lead. Thanks for modeling uh, a picture of faith and of church that looks and feels and, and smells more like the Jesus we learn about in the Gospels than probably many of the constructs we inherited as Christians in the U.S. It gives me, it gives us hope. And um, and we know it's not necessarily a glamorous road, but it is, it is a faithful road. And there's so much beauty within that, so we celebrate it. Thanks for being with us, my friend. Yep, I'm, I'm honored to, to be with you. It's a pleasure. Thanks to all of you. There's something that, that David offered there that um, I think is, is fresh to the Everyday Peacemaking podcast, and it's the acknowledgement that the way of everyday peacemaking tends to be a lonely existence. And um, I, I think he did a great job of describing that loneliness, even saying that, you know, it, whether you're a, a, a pastor, faith leader, or, um, a, or a follower of Jesus, an everyday peacemaker, there's... The, you're stigmatized, the, um, you're, you're delegitimized, and where the greatest pain is, I think, is when that happens within your communities of origin. And, um, and I, I think the, the three of us have that experience, and I know that we work with a number of people as well who recognize that as they begin to take this journey out of the trappings of, uh, of um, American Christianity, and specifically white American Christianity, and into a more hopeful, spacious alternative, um, the, the most painful experience is, is the, um, is the commentary, the rejection, the stigma, stigmatization, uh, the delegitimization that happens from their communities of origin, whether that's their actual families, their friends, their mentors, or their faith communities. And I think it just highlights for me this, um, the, like the, the resilience that's actually needed in, in order to be an everyday peacemaker, the, the tough skin that's needed, but also the work that it takes to build new constellations of relationships and, um, and so as he was sharing that story, I, I was just like, ah, this is awesome. And here's, here's an everyday peacemaker, like we're everyday peacemakers who, who we have a shared experience, uh, of that as we've taken this journey, but here we are in relationship with one another. Uh, and what just simply being on the screen with him and listening to his story, what that did to me, uh, to strengthen the bond of that relationship, to, re- to remind me that I'm not crazy and to move me forward with more hope and more resolve in, into the restorative revolution. That was also my big takeaway is, is him coming back to the themes of isolation. And I think when he said, um, I guess, John, when he, when you were kind of affirming, Hey, you know, that's the role of the pastor to be this prophetic leader. And he was like, yeah, but I marry and bury these people. These are people I love. And just him, that really hit me, you know, this, these are lifelong, these aren't disembodied people he disagrees with. These are people that are, um, that are deeply a part of his life and his community. And I think uh, just affirming what you said, Jer, that these are people in our community that we feel isolated from. Um, it's not a physical isolation. It's an emotional um, or a, a worldview, I guess, isolation from, from people who maybe at different points in our lives have been our closest confidants. I, d- I think of like a personal story of like a, there was a man who was in my husband and I's wedding, um, a close friend who through like eventually, you know, as I was continuing my faith deconstruction, like pulled Brad aside and had a very serious conversation with him about 
how he was worried about Brad's salvation because mm-hmm. of his marriage to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and those are painful. Those are really painful moments when you realize people that you thought were close to you because they knew who you were, or maybe close to you because they saw they be more, less because they're close to you and more because they thought they shared the same way of seeing the world. And once you don't see the world the same way, people mm-hmm. seem to treat you differently. But it, it made me also think just how critical, how important it is to remain grounded in art. We often talk about seeing the belovedness in other people, one of our practices see. And recently I've been reflecting a lot on um, turning that practice inward and learning to see the image of God and belovedness in ourselves. And it doesn't make the isolation go away, but I think there's a moment of remembering um, of who, who we belong yeah, there's, to. There's, um, there's something of like a pastoral salve <laughs> that I experienced talking to to David that, that is that is grounded that is um, been seasoned like he is as much an advocate and as passionate about these issues as any of us around this table but there's something about his life within a living breathing community for 20 years that gives him the kind of um, he can speak with the kind of authority and winsomeness and nuance of the complexity of relationships that I think is important for all of us to really wrestle with, especially in this heightened season of election pandemic. Um, we talk a lot when we talk about our third practice of everyday peacemaking contend. It's not about getting even. It's about getting creative in love. And this is a moment where it's easy for us to have this kind of ideological purity where we need to say we need everyone to check the same boxes as us or else they are out. And I think what I heard David say, even pushing back a little bit on what I was saying, was, hang on a minute, we are in relationship for the long haul, and what we don't need necessarily is more as we talk about armchair activists who just yell out on Facebook, we need people who are accompanying each other through this journey. And then when when we don't even call people out to the next Black Lives Matter protest, they're there because it's been formed in them over 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 years. Uh, that's the journey of the everyday peacemaker. It, it's not the one-off activists. It's it's the long-termers like David, and I think he really gives us a ballast that would we'd be wise to listen to that keeps our ship moving forward in, in all this chaos. And, and I wonder, John, if um, as if as we give our entire lives to this, right? This isn't everyday peacemaking. Isn't the most recent fad that will uh, that that will dissipate in two months? You know, like this is a way of life that's worth committing to because it's the thing that's remaking the world. I wonder if we do it as long as David has been, if we'll be able to rip off stories of restoration like he did, right? Like I, again, I think that's unique to to this particular episode. I mean, he. He, he had 10 different stories and probably could have gone on and on and on of mustard seeds of restoration springing to life. So as I'm, as I'm listening in on this, uh, is, is of course, we're still in a moment of polarization and division and all the things. Can I see the mustard seeds of restoration that are springing to life in me and around me? And I think it's ironic because he brought up the celebration of disciplines and the critique of, um, of his tradition that they're silent, but they don't celebrate in offering those 10 uh, mustard seeds, that was a celebration 
how do we as everyday peacemakers see the mustard seeds, acknowledge them, memorialize them, celebrate them, right? There's something that's probably um, high octane fuel for our practice to learn how to do that better. Just affirming of, of wishing, well, actually, A, I, I actually hate getting older, but in this scenario, I am, I am curious, like, oh, when I, when I am in my 60s, 70s, 80s, mm, hundreds, 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 yes, <laughs> I eat a lot of kale, you guys, um, how much more even keel will I be? I think sometimes I can get in my head about every little thing that I do, every little thing I say or I don't say, every person that I am or I'm not in relationship with or that I uh, choose to engage in tough conversations or not. Like I keep this like, feels like I keep this tally in my head of all the times that I, that I stood up or I didn't, you know, and um, what I loved about hearing from David and what I think the seasoned of being a, a, on the planet a few more rotations around the sun is that everything doesn't have the same level of meaning. I think there's a open-handedness and it doesn't mean he doesn't, I don't know him well, but I, it doesn't mean that I perceive him to be an unintentional person. It's that I perceive him to have the right grip on life, the right grip on the impact that he is supposed to be having, you know, that his life isn't lived by what is the legacy that I am leaving, but what is the status of my relationships is what I gathered from him. Um, and that felt uh, like a very necessary grounding That's good word, Hills. for me. That, that, that maybe what we're walking away from this conversation reflecting on is what is it that we are holding on to? What is the right grip for how we engage the brokenness of our world with this vision of restoration in a way that's long-term, in a way that's sustained, in a way that prioritizes the status of our relationships over our need to be right, uh, over our need to leave some legacy that we have built out of our own ego or our own insecurity? And I think that's one of the great gifts we have uh, coming out of this. And for those of you listening in, maybe we, um, we say yes to following a Jesus through the tunnel of darkness that often can be and feel alone. But in that tunnel, we're going to have mustard seeds of restoration that sustain us toward a light that is coming towards us. And let's keep pushing towards that in the midst of what seems like a dark season. And so friends, God's restoration is happening. Now go participate in it and know that you're not alone. For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.